and welcome back to Crescent Moon Kids. I'm Denise and today I have a new topic to share with you. I'm in episode four of my first season. I'm excited to be starting this new project and I hope that you have enjoyed my first three episodes. If not, be sure to check those out. Today I would like to share with you a little bit about a Montessori concept that we have in Montessori education. It's called follow the child. Now, this might sound a bit like the child gets to be in control, which if you have listened to any of my previous podcasts, especially the one on setting boundaries, you probably guessed that that isn't the case. But what we mean when we refer to that is the idea that we aim to observe the child so closely so intentionally and deliberately that we understand the child's interests, their needs, their developmental stage, which then allows us to begin to piece together an individualized approach so as to reach that child through any number of possible avenues. And so we understand every child is unique and different from every other child. And and we say this a lot, but I think sometimes we really don't take it to heart the way that we should, because out of the billions of people on the earth, there are no two people exactly alike. I mean, we all know this, even with families, there are no two siblings that are exactly alike. We have similarities, we have genes that make us look similar, but there are no two people that are exactly the same. And so, um, and, and parents are often in awe of this and they observe and compare their children. So as we recognize this absolute truth, we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that each child deserves to engage in her or his own style of learning. Every child has that fundamental right to become who he or she is in the best way possible. So to that end, we know that children want to engage in projects, experiments, learning, and activities that allow for their own individual learning process. Every child can be enticed to read, to engage in math, to become interested in history, if we as the adults offer those avenues that speak directly to him or her. Even if the child's not particularly interested in certain subjects, maybe they don't wanna read, maybe math is hard, but what we can find when we really explore this concept is that we look at what really excites them. We use their interests to spawn learning in any subject area. And so this might sound a little um, vague and a little hard to understand and hard to comprehend, but I wanna explain this. So the, the individuation that I'm talking about is a trademark of Montessori education. There's are also other great programs which engage children in project-based learning or perhaps nature-based schooling, many others. However, I can speak to the Montessori approach because I've taught in that system for many years. I do believe there are other wonderful programs out there that follow the child. But the key is that any program worth its weight in embracing child development will engage children in best possible practices that meets their needs and follows their interests. And as parents, you can do this at home as well. So 
you can really observe and, and find out what your child is interested in. And you're, you're the person who knows your child the best. And so traditional schooling, so when we go back to talking about our school system, it's based on a factory model and has not as a whole reached equilibrium with this paradigm that I'm, I'm bringing up. So lacking money, lacking resources or awareness, and with a structure that's been ingrained into generations of Americans, what we consider a traditional education is actually failing our children. It's creating apathy. It's creating resistance, detachment, rebellion for many students. And when I casually have conversations with kids about their school experience or just in general about how they like their school, they tell me they hate school or it's boring or any other negative responses. I often cringe first because I really would hope that that children would love to learn and love their school. And then it creates a sadness and grief in me because I know it doesn't have to be that way. I know there are excellent teachers in traditional settings who are using their creativity and really trying to make a difference. And I wanna make it clear that I place no fault on them as individuals. What I'm referring to is a systemic problem. And by the way, if you have the time, look up Sir Ken Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, Ken Robinson. He's on um, the TED Talks and he shares some really extensive information with a fair amount of dry wit, I might add, about this very issue. That's Sir Ken Robinson. So if you have a chance, look him up on the TED Talks. So, but, and what he says are, you know, schools are squelching children's inner light and their curiosity, their drive to learn. And, and I believe that this is happening, and he talks about this too, mainly because of the factory model I referred to earlier. The old system does not allow them or their teachers to spark curiosity and to run with their ideas and make choices. So where this came from, it was during the Industrial Revolution. Factories sprang up, people began transitioning from rural settings to urban settings, and the general population was shifting their lifestyle and the work. So they were starting to, more people were starting to work in factories. And there's a, uh, an article I read, the modern education system was designed to teach future factory workers to be punctual, docile, and sober. And this was in um, an article on the website qz.com. The author was Allison Schrager. And so she relates in it, and I'll quote, factory owners required workers who would show up on time and do what their managers told them. Sitting in a classroom all day with a teacher was good training for that. And that's the end of the quote. And then she goes on to say, the early industrialists were begin, be, they were behind universal education because it catered to directly to their needs. People who had previously followed the rhythm of seasons, maybe they were in farming, maybe they were related to farming in some way, or maybe they were a, a domestic worker and they were, or just worked in the home. And that routine was uh, seasonal, more seasonal and more attuned to the environment and nature. Well, all of that, those people had to be trained to follow orders and to follow the factory system. And there was an act in England in 1870, the Elementary Education Act. And, 
And the factory owners were among the biggest champions of this act because then it, it created that compulsion for, for kids. So on the one hand, formal education became more widely available and accessible, but the downside for, was the motive for this design. And by design, the method created a system that pigeonholed people. So it forced complacency and basically snuffed out any remaining creative impulses. And then another reason to create this model was for efficiency. One teacher could lecture a large group of people at the same time. So I wanted to relate this brief history to reference where our current model originated and how we got to this condition of disregard for the individual child. So where do we go from here? And first off, I want to acknowledge I believe in universal education and the right of every child to have access to learning. What I also know is that the best way to engage children or anyone, adults, teenagers, is to understand who they are as an individual, understand what drives them as a person, what their interests are, their likes, their dislikes, and then to reach a person, a child especially, we need to connect with them, really get to know them. And there's a lot of information now about that social-emotional learning and, and um ways to really engage people so that they feel safe. And that's one of the first tenets, I think, of, of a lot of the, the new information that, that has come out in recent decades. We really have to develop a trust and children have to trust the adult that is helping them to grow. And so we need to observe the actions and words of the children. We need to listen to their ideas and formulate a plan that we think will engage them. And most of all, we need to speak to their, develop, their developmental needs. Uh, and so Dr. Montessori, who engaged this whole uh, Montessori education movement, understood this over a century ago. She understood children need to experience their physical world. They need to interact with their environment and they should be given choices based on their current interest and, and their developmental needs. So this has been happening for decades now, and Montessori teachers are really defined as a guide. So we're trained to follow the child, and we're, we're basically guiding the child toward what we think they're ready to experience or to learn. And we are taught in training to first observe. And we spend many hours practicing observing, observing children, understanding how to make observations and, and in, a, in a way that's objective as possible. And we, we all will, will put in our little subjective notes and we'll, we'll have our, it'll go through our own sort of um, psyche and our own personalities. But in as much as possible, we use our, our objective information to guide that child and to help them to learn and to grow. So the questions that you might want to ask yourself when you are thinking about observing your child at home are what does she get excited about? What's the first thing he does when he gets up in the morning? Does she seem to need a verbal cue along with something visual or does she really focus on the visual and not so much on auditory cues. How much time does he engage with others socially? Is he really 
focused and interested in engaging and, and interacting with other people. Does he say, I see what you mean, or I hear what you are saying? And I, I like to listen to those um, interactions because those are indicator words. If a person says, I see what you mean, or I see uh, how this goes, that might mean they're a visual, more a visual person, and that's how they learn better. Is, is she a rock collector? Does she go find rocks every time you're outside? Or does he talk about outer space or things like that? Does she move her body in the direction of the conversation? For instance, if you're talking about waves in the ocean, does she imitate the waves as you're talking about it? So that might mean she's more kinesthetic learner. Is he quick with math or does she have an extensive vocabulary? Do they sing? Is she aware of changes you make in the home as you maybe rearrange your furniture or put things in a different cabinet? And um, there's, you know, walking while talking or looking at the natural world and really being drawn to that. So those are just a few of the things that, that you can start to think about and ask yourself as, as you are trying to observe your child. And there's a, a book called The Multiple Intelligences, and it was written by Howard Garner. And it goes into more detail about the approaches that educators can use and what kinds of ways uh, people learn in general. And so he defined nine different uh, intelligences, he calls them. So there's verbal and linguistic, logical, mathematical, there's spatial, visual, bodily and kinesthetic, there's musical, interpersonal and intrapersonal, a naturalist, and then an existential, which is kind of like, what's the meaning of life? So if we go back to the verbal, often kids who are really sensitive to sounds and meanings and rhythms of words are, are in tune with that intelligence more, more acutely. A logical mathematical person can think conceptually, abstractly. They love numbers and numerical patterns, things like that. A spatial visual person can think in pictures, and often a child who is dyslexic is, is very in tune with that. Uh, an intel, a bodily kinesthetic intelligence is really about how the body is moving and, and controlling the, the bodily movements and, and being able to move in ways that are, are helpful to learn. The musicals kind of um, self-explanatory about rhythm and pitch. Interpersonal means you really interact with other people and you really respond well to other people. And that's one of the best ways you learn. Intrapersonal is being self-aware and in tune with yourself and your inner kind of life and your inner knowing. A naturalist loves you know anything in nature and then the existential is, is the last one. So he, this Gar Howard Garner asserts that, that teachers would be wise to approach an array of these intelligences to better reach their students. And even though he doesn't adhere to learning styles, he doesn't want people to misinterpret his uh, identification of these intelligences, but he says that that you can teachers can use them. So if a student is more visually aware, it would be prudent to offer a visual aid for more effective learning, that kind of thing.
And so through following the child, again, and observing them, they, we can really begin to learn what the best practice is for, for reaching each student. And my hope is for all kids to experience individualized learning in, in whatever setting it is, whether it's at a traditional school, at a private school, at home, wherever your child is all day long, that is, is the goal, to really help children in the way that they learn best. But um, you can create, no matter what's happening in your child's schooling experience, you can create uh, a home setting that's very stimulating. And over the years, many studies have shown that children are more engaged when they can choose the activities that follow their interests. They have a higher sense of well-being. They have a general overall feeling of satisfaction. And it sanctions intrinsic motivation. So rather than basing the activities on an external motivator like a grade or a candy or a, a treat, um, what we want is for children to really have that intrinsic motivation that says, I want to learn more because this is what interests me. And then they take on a more personal responsibility and then they feel more competent. And there's also evidence of less aggression when they're allowed to follow their interests and their bliss. And there's a woman, um, a Montessori book by Angeline Lillard and it's called Montessori, The Science Behind the Genius. And that's a book that for, for a lot of people you might be interested, even if you're not in Montessori or your child is not in, in a Montessori classroom. It's a, it's a great way to understand a little bit about the program and then also to kind of explain why it works. Um, and she says that research on having choice and control over one's environment shows that the provision of choice and a sense of control has positive consequences for both cognitive and emotional functioning. So they not only have higher cognitive abilities, but they gain more emotional intelligence as well. And I think we've learned over the years and recently especially that, that children have to have an emotional intelligence or they really cannot function in our culture, in, in, in a society. So when Dr. Montessori set up her first Montessori classroom, this was in Rome in the, in the housing projects, and there were children who were running the streets. They were children whose parents maybe worked in a factory all day and they were left alone for many hours. So she was commissioned to go ahead and set up a, a school or a, more like a daycare, but it was a classroom. It was her first experience with actually being in education because she had trained as a medical doctor. And a bit later, after the, the school had started, she shared this story that I wanted to tell you. So one day, a teacher came a bit late to school after having forgotten to lock the cupboard. And this was a, a setting where I think it was needing, they were needing to lock up everything as they, as they ended their day. She found that the children had opened its door. Many of them were standing about it while others were removing objects and carrying them away. I interpreted the incident as a sign that the children now knew the objects so well that they could make their own choice. And this proved to be the case. This began a new and interesting activity for the children. 
They could now choose their own occupations according to their own particular preferences. From this time on, we made use of low cupboards so that the children could take from them the material that corresponded to their own inner needs. And that's the end of her quote. So she recognized right away, very early on, that children did best when they were able to choose. And they were, they were really driven and inspired by an inner desire, an inner, she called, she had a special word, the horme, which was kind of like their own inner power, their own essence of who they are. And so since that time in Montessori classrooms, choice making has been built into the curriculum. And I know that many traditional settings and teachers are making positive changes to allow for more child-led learning. So if you're a traditional teacher out there, I challenge you to find ways to offer choice and to observe your students as individuals so that you can implement small changes to honor who they are. And then I think we also need to have a broader conversation to guide a systemic change in our culture of education. There are alternative methods that are working. And I think it was Sir Ken Robinson who said, if it works, why are we calling it alternative? And so we need to create a new systemic structure for our kids that truly follows the child. And I believe that there are many, many different ways. I don't think there's one way. Montessori is not the way. It's, it's just a way. I think there are many, many creative people out there who are thinking about ways that we can really change the system of education to really meet the, the needs of the children. So at the very least, until then, what can you do at home? And so I was just thinking about how, how I can maybe offer you some, um, some ideas. So again, I recommend that you notice what's your child interested in or motivated by, because again, you know your child the best of anyone. Notice what, what he loves or she wants to do. And then you can think of ways to present the math concepts, to present a lesson in history or do a science experiment or maybe some grammar using whatever they're interested in. So for instance, let's say your child loves trains. So you can find books to learn about the origins and history of trains with her toy trains. Maybe she has a whole set of them do some simple adding and subtracting. You can teach about friction with the wheels on the tracks, or if your child is a beginning reader, you can write words such as go, or on, or to, puff, track, things like that. For an, a more advanced reader, you can introduce nouns and verbs with words that describe trains and how they move. Um, so, there are so many ways that you can really facilitate that kind of learning process. If your child loves rainbows, what about the refraction of light and how to use a prism to demonstrate? Maybe you have your child write a story about what's at the end of the rainbow and maybe you make it in and help her make it into a book. All the different um, things that we can find at the end of the rainbow. So obviously it would be fiction and it would be a way to help creative writing inspire that. Maybe you learn about how different cultures throughout history viewed rainbows and what they taught their children. Or you use a protractor to create a semicircle and then learn more about those shapes and angles. 
So those are just a couple of ideas for how you can really expand what, what your child's interests are and to be able to access learning in, in each of, of the curriculum areas that we consider important in, in our child's development and education. So I hope this has been helpful information. I do believe it is critically important for us to think about creating a new paradigm, one that will create a world full of passionate people creating from their hearts. Everyone deserves the opportunity to follow their bliss and find what inspires them. And children of all ages should be allowed to make choices based on their interests and to let that guide their learning process. So innovative educators know how to make that happen. And I, I want to inspire all of you out there who are either teachers or home teachers or just it, and just all of you parents out there to be able to think about these ways and these ideas and then to help maybe inspire change in your community. So thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you next week.